Well, let's open up our Bibles over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Last week, I started a message. It was called Small Statements That Are Big Deals. Small Statements That Are Big Deals. Today, we're continuing the second part of that here in our Thessalonian study. Now, next week will be our last week in 1 Thessalonians, and then the following week, we'll move into 2 Thessalonians. So they do kind of go hand in hand and uh, make powerful, powerful statements. Small statements that are big deals. You know, the Word of God, this book that I hold in my hand, the Word of God, it is an incredibly powerful book. It is not like any other book. This is the only book in the world that is God-breathed, that is inspired. Literally, the words that we have are the words that God wanted in his text. All right, now this is a translation. Okay, this is not the original Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. I get that. Okay, but our Bibles that we have now in our church, we use the King James. And uh, uh, we don't believe the King James translators were inspired, but we we do believe they are very competent men who did a very good job in their translation. And when you pick up your Bible, you can believe it to be the word of God and you can believe what it says. You know, the issue isn't as much as... uh, Uh, what does that mean? I think we can understand it if we study a little bit. It's let's apply what it means, okay? The issue usually is not so much just getting, comprehending as much as applying it. That's where we drop the ball many times. The Bible is a powerful book, though. It is inspired by God himself. Holy Spirit is the one who gave us the word of God. Years ago, there was a little boy who went to Sunday school. He's just a little guy. He's probably seven or eight years old. And boy, he saw everybody with the Bible, and he thought, he came in on a bus, and, uh, uh, and he, he saw everybody with the Bible, and he says, I really want one of those. And they said, well, if you, you, know, if you come so many weeks and all that, you'll get a Bible. And, and uh, so he thought, that's for me, that's what I'm going to do, I'm going to keep coming. And he did, he kept coming, he kept coming, he kept coming. And, uh, and so after a few weeks, uh, he got his own Bible and he, oh, man, he was so excited. He has his own Bible. He was so excited to have a Bible. And so he got it that Sunday, you know, his chest out. He's proud of himself. He's got his Bible. Goes home. Next week he comes back, walks up to his Sunday school teacher and he says, here, you can have it back. She's puzzled. She says, what do you mean I can have it back? He says, I don't want it. You don't want it. Why don't you want it? He says, it kicks. That's why it kicks. That's his word for conviction. Okay? The Bible convicts us. And that is a good thing, folks, because we need to be convicted. Okay? If you don't think you need that, it shows how much you need that. All right? God can transform a life by simple statements in the scriptures. And these truths are for us individually as believers, but they're also for the local church as a group. And 1 Thessalonians, of course, is written to a local church, the Thessalonian church or the church of Thessalonica. Now in verses 12 through 15, which we saw last week, we won't spend a lot of time on them, but just to read them, it says, and, I, and we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. We see many things in scripture. And these, these truths that we see, what do they do? They're these, they're these small statements that are big deals in the life of a local church. A lot of little things that make up the big thing, all right? People say, how do you have a a quality local church? It's a lot of little things that make up the big thing. It's not just one thing, 
Okay, any church can have one thing. But it's a lot of little things that make up the big thing to where I get so excited as God honors his word through our ministry. And I I get so excited. I see people get saved. I see people dedicate their lives to Christ. I see them start living for Christ. I see people who are lost in sin when they came rough. They get saved. They trust Christ as Savior, and God starts transforming their lives. And you see the transformation right before your life. That's not look at us. That's look at Christ. Look at what God has done. And it's through the power of the Scripture. Now, we believe in, in not just verse-by-verse preaching and teaching in our church, but it is something that we emphasize. Why? Because what happens is this, folks, and I want you to understand this. This is why this is so important. What happens is this. As you go verse by verse through the scripture, you cover everything God wants us to know. Those things are what God uses to make us complete, as it talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. That the man of God may be perfect. The idea is complete, okay, mature, truly furnished unto all good works. God fully furnishes our house, so to speak, to where we can be what he wants us to be. Now that gets me pumped. That gets me excited. That gives me a reason to get up and preach and teach the scriptures because I know and I've seen it and God continues to work according to his word. And so one of the things we should esteem them who are over us in the Lord, that's church leadership, the pastor, okay? Verse 14, now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. The word unruly means rebellious, out of step, deliberately out of step. Warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto, unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. There are too many Hatfield and McCoy fights going on in churches today. All right. Well, you did that to me. I'm going to do this to you. Oh, yeah, you do that to me. You dare do that to me. Well, I'm going to do this to you. Well, you better not do that to me. If you do that to me, I'm going to do that to you. Sounds like a couple little preschool age kids. Matter of fact, preschoolers, I think, are more spiritual than that. They just love. That's what they do. They just love. You see these little kids, they see each other. Our little preschoolers here at church, they see each other. They just go up to each other, throw their arms around each other and give each other a hug. You know? Now, see, we have to learn to be mean, don't we? Now, Maybe that's not true. We perfect it as we get older, though. (laughs) Small statements continue. Verse 16, rejoice evermore. That's the first quality you see on your sheet today. Rejoice evermore. Rejoice now and forever. Now, this is an interesting term. There are around 70 commands in the New Testament to rejoice. Think of that. 70 commands in the New Testament to rejoice. We as Christians ought to be rejoicing. This must be based on something bigger, much bigger than our circumstances. If I am to rejoice all the time, how can I do that if I'm living under adverse circumstances? Well, it's got to be, there's got to be something that makes that possible for me to do so. Okay? What about when I'm sick? I'm supposed to rejoice when I'm sick? Well, the Bible says yes. How about when you've lost your job? Yes. How about when you've lost a loved one? Yes, you can rejoice. How about when you find you have a terminal disease? I don't say that lightly. Yes, you can rejoice. Remember, this is written to Christians, by the way. 
How about real persecution? I'm not talking about somebody says to you when you hand them a track, I don't want that. Keep it to yourself. That's not real persecution. That's child's play. I'm talking about where your house gets burned down or somebody comes and cuts off a limb or takes your husband and wife or your children away from you and kills them. This is what's going on in the world today. And you know what, folks? A lot of those believers are better at rejoicing than we are in America. Might say, how can they do that? How can they really do that? Well, let me expand on it, but I'll give you the answer. It's a matter of biblical perspective. That's what it is. It's a matter of biblical perspective. And you know, I can say things like that, and a lot of people say, yeah, but you don't know that, you don't know that. There's a lot I don't know, but I can tell you this, this is what God says about it. And God does know. As a matter of fact, he understands the problems we face better than we do ourselves. He is calling us folks to a higher perspective on the, on the problems and the testings and the trials that we face in life. He says, rejoice evermore. You have to remember who you are in Christ and what you have in Christ. We have the Lord himself who said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. The shepherd of our souls. Okay. We have an eternal home in heaven, eternal where there's joy forevermore. That's what's coming for everybody who's trusted Christ alone as their savior, a home in heaven. And that's forever. Now think about it. Whatever I'm going through now is short-lived. Yes, it can be very painful. It can be tough. It can be a great trial. And by the way, these people had persecution, real persecution that they were going through. And Paul knew what persecution was about. But he says, rejoice evermore. We have the promise that the Lord is coming back soon (laughs) to take us home. Listen, I know people say, well, you Christians, you just use the rapture as a cop-out, you know. You're not man or woman enough to face the trouble. You're always saying, Jesus, come, Jesus, come, Jesus, come. Well, friend, the idea of Jesus, come is biblical. It says at the end of the Bible, even so, come Lord Jesus. That was given under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's a mindset, it's a proper mindset for a Christian to have. Listen, wouldn't you want to improve your life? Wouldn't you want to improve your environment? And I'm not talking about whether you've got trash on your ground or not, okay? I'm talking about the the world in which you live, the circumstances in which you live. Wouldn't you like to improve that if you could? Sure you would. Now, that doesn't mean we can't be content at the same time. But if somebody said, hey, I'm offering you a, a vastly superior upgrade to what you have, and I'll give it to you for free. Wouldn't you want that? I'd want that. Guess what? The upgrade's coming. Heaven is around the corner. And that's forever, forever. That's a reason to rejoice. But you see, that's an issue of remembering the biblical perspective. Now, as I've covered that already this morning, don't you already feel a little better? I know I do. A Christian who is not rejoicing is a Christian whose eyes are not on the Lord. Okay? And I don't mean that in a, in a rebuking kind of way. It's just the fact. We've lost sight of God's perspective. We've lost sight of it. That believer's not looking at the big picture. This is why we need to stay in the word of God. It calibrates our thinking. It gets us properly focused. It gets us locked in the way we need to be. 
It keeps our thinking straight. It reminds us of the way that it really is. Because folks, the troubles and the trials we face in life, you know what they do? They distort the real picture. They distort the real circumstance. They distort how God views it. And how God views it is the key to victory. Hold your place and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me. I dare say, this is probably the case, that no one in this room, and I could be wrong, most likely will face the persecution that the Apostle Paul faced. Now, I could be wrong on that. Things could collapse in America, and we could have an incredible mess on our hands. And we know there's signs of of that in some ways, but folks, there's a good chance that we could stay free to the rapture. I can't guarantee it. That would be wonderful. Could there be persecution before the rapture? There could be. I'm not saying there can't be, but I'm saying this. Paul knew all about persecution. Read 2 Corinthians 11 11 and 12 sometime. Talk about somebody who really went through the ringer, so to speak. He knew what it was like. As a matter of fact, he got the ultimate persecution. In the end, according to man, okay, they cut off his head, but of course that was his promotion into glory. And he says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says, for our light affliction, light affliction. Paul knew all about real persecution. His back was so scarred, it probably looked like a road map. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You get the picture? No matter what it is we're going through in this life, it is a temporary circumstance. There is, get this, there is an end to it. When we get promoted to heaven, there's no end to that. Guess what? We can hold out. We can have a right attitude. God is the one who can help us, though, with that. Paul also said in Romans 8.18, he says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The sufferings of this present time are nothing to be compared with what's coming. we got to keep that perspective. And when we do, we can rejoice evermore. It leads us to our next one, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. It says, Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Now, it's kind of interesting. If I was to say to you, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? You would say, well, that's easy. Jesus wept. But actually, in the original language, this is the shortest verse. This is the shortest verse. Pray without ceasing. Pray all the time. See, prayer can certainly be a a certain time of the day where you have a time alone with God and you, you pray through a list of requests. Maybe it's before you go to bed at night. You pray through a list of requests. And that's good And it's important in all of that. But can I tell you this? Praying without ceasing is more than that. It is open and wonderful communication with our Heavenly Father all day long. And the people who learn to do that, by the way, are the people it affects their rejoicing because they're in communication all day long with the Lord. Pray without ceasing is closely related to what it means to walk by faith. 
It is dependence on the Lord at all times. That's why in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, it says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. That's the privilege of the Christian. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Can I ask you this morning, do you find yourself in a time of need? You might say, yeah, I'm, right now I'm in a time of need. Can I ask you this? Have you trusted Jesus Christ alone as your Savior? Do you know where you're going when you die? Well, yeah, I know that. Then friend, listen, what are you waiting for? You ought to be, right to, you ought to be, you ought to be running to the throne of grace. Lord, you're the one who has the right to be there because you came through the blood of Christ. The only way. Lord, Father, Father, I need your help. I need your help. Okay, son. Okay, daughter. I'm here. By the way, he's never out to lunch. He never says, I'll be back at two o'clock or call me in the morning 24-7. And he pours out grace so we can make it. And not only we can make it, we can actually thrive. It is knowing and making good on the fact that we are always able to come to the Lord in prayer and talk to him day in and day out. And can I say, dear friend, that if we are praying without ceasing, if we're always in that attitude and communication with the Lord, it sharpens our spiritual eyesight as we continue to pray. We keep focus. We don't drift as much as those who don't pray without ceasing. Okay, And this is especially noteworthy seeing it was a time of persecution for this church and the things that they were going through. You know, in thinking about this and preparing this week and, and just thinking about the text, meditating on it, I came over something I just wanted to share with you. Okay, And I've been trying to do this this week and it's been such a blessing. Make a commitment to pray for people on the spot when they come to mind. Now, I want you to think about that. Here's what I'm saying. Let's say, for an example, I'm going through my day and whatever, I see a college kid and, or I hear about a college kid doing this thing or that thing, and then I think about, oh, Grace Campus Fellowship, all right, or college ministry, and then I think about Brian Lauer. You know what I ought to do? I, right then, I ought to stop and I ought to pray for Brian. Do you see what I'm saying? This uh, last couple weeks, uh, John Albrecht, his, his sister passed away, and then just this last week, Margaret's brother died. And they, both of them came to mind this week. What do I do? They came to mind, I stop, and I pray for each of them. Now, I don't say that to say, look at me. I'm saying, isn't this a better way to live life? Isn't this something that is going to be a blessing to other people? You know, we, our tendency, we are so ridiculous. We'll think of somebody and we think of all the things wrong with them. What? Boy, I'm sure I'm glad Jesus doesn't look at me that way. Okay? Well, that's because you're in Christ. Yeah, but if it's a brother and sister in, in the Lord, they're in Christ too, right? Let's pray for them. Okay, let's say they do have certain shortcomings. Pray in humility to the Father about that. Okay? But here's the point. Let's pray. Let's pray. I got a, a text this morning from Dr. Scudder. It was about, uh, oh, about probably 7.10 our time, somewhere around there. He said, I'm praying for you today, praying for great church service and all that, okay? He doesn't have to, you know, he's got plenty of things to pray for, and he does. He prays a lot. 
I was blessed to be able to text back at him and said, thank you so much for that. And I said, you came to mind and I prayed for you many times in this last week. Hope everything's going well. Okay? Somebody comes to mind, pray for them. Think of how much better all lives can be if we'll do that. Pray without ceasing, right? This leads us to our... Our next verse. By the way, as we rejoice and trust in the Lord, leaving our cares with him, we can thank him for all the things then that come our way. All right? If the Lord is ultimately in control of our lives, and he is, then what comes our way, he has allowed or even sent. This leads us to our next verse, verse 18. In everything give thanks. In everything give thanks. I am so glad that our Bible doesn't say, and it's not that it's wrong to put it this way, but I am just glad that the way our Bible reads, it doesn't say in everything. It says in everything, emphasizing the every. Don't you like that? In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That's our third statement today, and everything gives thanks. See, this is the right perspective. Verse 18 fits beautifully together with verse 16, rejoice always. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. This is the way it's supposed to be. One commentator said this, and I thought it was good. He said, giving thanks to God should be the Christian's native emotion. Wow. Giving thanks to God should be the Christian's native emotion. You know what many of our native emotions are? Whining, complaining. That's our native emotion. No, we ought to be giving thanks to God. Hold your place and look at Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4 6, it says, Be careful for nothing, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, there it is again, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and look at this, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The idea of keeping here is the idea of guarding something, guarding something. God says through prayer, proper prayer with thanksgiving, it can guard our hearts and minds. How important is that? It's very important. See, it's the mindset that we see in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. A lot of you know it. I'll just, I'll just read it. You can turn there if you want, but it'll be up on the board here. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, okay? If you're a believer and you love the Lord and you're living your life, and let's say good things or tragedy comes into your life, guess what? God is going to use that. It's going to work together for good. It does not mean it's good in itself. Listen, somebody comes down with cancer or something like that, no one in their right mind can look at that and say, oh, it's good you have cancer. What? Are you crazy? It's not good they have cancer. The good thing is that it can work together for good. The end result can be good. That's what the Bible's getting at. See, for those of us who have trusted Christ as Savior, God will never leave us nor forsake us. He walks with us each day. So there's nothing, nothing, nothing that can come our way to where the Lord says, oh, wow, I didn't see that happening. Didn't see that coming. No, what does he say? 
says, yep, hold on, hold on. Hold on to my hand. I've got this. I'm in control. See, things, God doesn't send things to us, folks, to make us bitter. It's to make us better. It's got a bigger picture, right? He says, I'm going to walk you through this. It's going to be okay. Doesn't mean it's not going to be incredibly hard. It may be incredibly hard. But you know what? Anybody who walks with God through a trial comes out the other side. They're stronger and they're better because of it. Back to 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 19. I love this. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, it says, quench not the spirit. Does that mean the Holy Spirit's thirsty? No. The idea of quench, this is our fourth point, do not quench the Holy Spirit. If we are aware of what the Lord is doing and wants to do, if we are constantly in an attitude and mode of prayer, the Holy Spirit is going to lead us into doing certain things. Certain things, actions, desires are going to come to mind. Why? Because we're in tune with the Lord. We're fellowshipping with him, all right? And when, when those things come to mind, that's the Holy Spirit leading us in life. And he says this, listen, when the Holy Spirit is leading you to do something, be sure you do it. Don't quench the Spirit. The idea of this quenching is to put out a fire. Don't put out the fire. See, here's the thing. God expects those of us who have trusted Christ the Savior to be on fire for him, excited about living for Christ. If you're a deadbeat Christian, you're not right with God. You ought to have an enthusiasm about serving Christ. You ought to be excited about serving Christ. Listen, we've got the best life in all the world as believers. No problems? No, there's problems. But guess what? We have the victory through Christ. We've got heaven to look forward to. We've got all kinds of blessings in our lives. And God wants to use us to accomplish a work. And folks, when you get used by God to accomplish a work in anybody else's life, there is a joy and contentment and a, and a thrill with that. That's why you don't want to put out the fire. Now, what happens? What does it mean to quench the spirit? Okay. See, he wants us to have a zeal for Christ and for the gospel. To quench the spirit has to do with sins of omission. Sins of omission. That means not doing what we're supposed to do. Not doing what we're being told to do. Not doing what we're being led to do. That's what quenching is. When the Holy Spirit says, hey, do that. Maybe you're in a situation with somebody and, you, and the Holy Spirit says, talk to him about me, about Christ. Give him a track. Do this, do that. And we say, well, eh, eh, not today, not, not, not. That's quenching the Spirit. That's a sin of omission. It's not doing something he wants us to do. That's a sin of omission. You might say, well, isn't that the same as grieving the Spirit? No, grieving the Spirit's different. Grieving the Spirit, our sins, has to do with sins of commission. In other words, it's, it's doing something we're not supposed to do. We're sinning a sin. God says, I don't want you to do that. And we say, well, I'm going to do that. That's what I'm going to do. And we do that sinful thing. That's, that's, that grieves the Holy Spirit. So to not do what God wants me to do is to quench the Spirit. To do what God doesn't want me to do is to grieve the Spirit. 
Both of them are sins. Both of them are equally as bad. Now, we're in Thessalonians. Turn a few pages to your right, okay? Titus chapter 2. Quench not the Spirit. Don't put out the fire that the Holy Spirit puts in us as believers. Can I tell you, folks, God wants us to be boiling hot for him. Did you know that in the Bible there's a word that means boiling hot, and that's what God wants us to be? Some of you know what it is. It's the word zealous. Zealous. God wants us to be zealous, Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, a unique people, a special people. Look at this. Zealous of good works. See, people who are saved ought to be zealous of good works. It doesn't get you to heaven. It doesn't keep you going to heaven. It doesn't prove you're going to heaven. But it is the life of somebody, it's, it's the life that should be there of somebody who is going to heaven. And I emphasize should. We ought to be zealous. If the Holy Spirit has his way in my life, I will be zealous for Christ. I will be zealous, look what it says, of good works. Let me ask you today, do you find yourself zealous for the Lord or do you find yourself indifferent? Are you enduring this message today? Or are you excited about how this affects your life and my life? And by the way, how this can affect our church as a whole. See, no church is ever what it ought to be. Very seldom does that happen. We ought to be zealous. Zealous about talking about the Lord, sharing the gospel. Zealous about coming to church, being a part of church. Not just attending, but being plugged in. Getting excited. Being in the Word of God. Do you love the Word of God? Love opening it up? Or when you think of reading your Bible, do you think of, oh, I guess I'll read it. You know, get the Holy Spirit off my back. I'll read the Bible today. All right? Uh, well, Yes, but folks, it's way more than that, isn't it? This ought to be something that we absolutely love, okay? Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It says in verse 20, despise not prophesyings, verse 21, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Number 5 and 6, they kind of go together, all right? Have respect for those giving out the word of God. Prophesying at the time, of course, now remember there wasn't a completed canon at the time. There wasn't a completed word of God. Prophesying can be two things. It can be telling what's coming. It can also be telling forth the word of God or the truth of God. I think the emphasis here is not so much as prophecy as, as far as future events, although that would fit, but speaking the word of God, or somebody says, I'm speaking, this is what God says. This is what God's word says. Have respect for those giving out the word of God. But here's the key. Yes, don't despise that, but look at the next part. Prove all things and only hold fast to those things that are good. In other words, test what you hear by the scriptures and keep what is true and good. There is a desperate need for this today. Listen, uh, you may not realize this, but of course, this is uh, the, the uh, world in which I live. Preachers and teachers and, and doctrine and books about the Bible and uh, scriptural ideas and, and all of this. And I can tell you, folks, there is a deluge of junk 
being spewed out today in the name of Christ. People saying, this is what God says. This is what the Bible says. Or this is what God taught me. And you hear what they were taught. And it's like, that just totally violates the scriptures. How can anybody hold to that? Well, because they're going by their feelings or their experience. They're not going by the word of God. Everything has to be checked by scripture. We've had people come to our church before and they hear things they've never heard before. And they said, you know what? That didn't sit right with me. And I figure, well, I need to go, I need to go home. I need to check it out in the Bible. Okay, here's the thing. Amen to that. Check it out in the Bible. Don't check it out by another Bible teacher. Check it out by the Bible. See, usually when people say, I'm going to check it out by the Bible, they mean I'll check it out by another Bible teacher. What does Dr. So-and-so say about this? What does Dr. So- this other one, what does he say about this, okay? Folks, it's not what men have to say about it. It's what God says. If what is said is biblical, whatever you learned in the past that was wrong, you need to reject it. You need to throw it away and embrace that which the scriptures actually teach. There's a desperate need for that today. Christians, as I mentioned in our study in 1 John recently, Christians are the most gullible people in the world. If we like somebody, if they look good, if they're, if they're using a Bible, if they're this or if they're that, you know, they think, oh, man, boy, I like that. You know, boy, boy, that person's got a lot of charisma. You know, I just like the way they smile and they've got all those teeth and, you know, they <laughs> kind of look like a Mormon. And um, Why did I say that? Anyway... Maybe because of the Osmonds, I don't know. Um, Beautiful smiles. They have beautiful smiles, I'll say that. Here's the point, though. The point is this. That is not a criteria for what is right and what is wrong. This is it. And listen, if I am teaching something against the Bible, you're looking at somebody who wants to know it, because I understand one day I'm going to give an account before God for what I'm teaching. But that goes for everybody doesn't it? Not everyone who names the name of Christ is of God or is giving out true doctrine. And by the way, just to where this should be said, the size and growth of a church has little to do with whether it is biblical or not. Small doesn't mean godly. Big doesn't mean godly. Big doesn't mean ungodly. Small doesn't mean ungodly. It's What is being said, match it up to the scriptures, is it accurate or not? We are living with carnal ideas and standards today, and it's a mess. Tell you what, I wish we could kind of get back to what it said in Deuteronomy under the law. Now, I'm not saying let's honestly go under the law again, but I'm saying the truth that was there. Let me show this to you, Deuteronomy chapter 18. Here's the way it was under law. You didn't have a lot of false false prophets running around. Deuteronomy 18.20, it says, but the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, this is God speaking here, but the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. Die. Those are preaching false gospels. They would have a really short career in ministry. But Jesus knew what was coming. He said, even in his day, Matthew 7, 15, he said, beware of false prophets. 
which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. They look like the good guys, but inside they're the bad guys. How can you tell if a person is a false prophet or not? It's by what he says and by what his disciples say about what he says. That's how you find out whether a person's a false prophet or not, by what he says and by what his disciples say he says, because he's teaching people something. Now you might say, well, why do you include him or them? Why do you include them? I'll tell you why. Because most false prophets will deny what they're saying is wrong. If you confront them on it, they'll say, I'm not saying that. Well, you said this and oh, no, 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 no. No, I believe salvation's a gift. It's by grace through faith and all of that. Talk to some of the people who are under their ministry and see what they believe about what he's saying. You'll find out what he's really saying. Now, let me just share that with you. Okay, that's the voice of experience, folks, with that. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 5, our last quality here. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Now, I looked up, I did some word studies on this this week, and our King James Bible is completely accurate. Okay, a lot of them say for every form of of evil. No, the actual, the word form means appearance. It means appearance. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Stay away from, not only from that which is evil, but even that which looks like we're doing what's wrong. We should be very concerned that we do not bring reproach to the cause of Christ. We need to be very careful that we do not turn the unbeliever away with hypocrisy. And there's plenty of that going on today. Big ministry in the Chicago area. The pastor just was fired from his church. I won't even say who it was. Big scandal in the Chicago area. And this has been coming for a while, but finally it happened and he's been fired and it's, it's a huge scandal. Huge scandal. See, godly believers do not have a problem with Number seven, abstain from all appearance of evil, for they value the souls of others. But carnal people are always wanting to see how close they can get to evil without crossing the line. The idea is like a foolish little child, okay? Don't go near the fire. What do they do? They're like magnets. Now don't go near the fire. As soon as you're not looking, they want to get as close as they can to the fire. All of a sudden, something happens. They get burned. If they would have just been obedient to the authority God had put in their life, they wouldn't be suffering because of it, okay? God has given us, folks, his word. Carnal people are always saying, what's wrong with that? You ever notice that? Oh, you shouldn't be, what's wrong with that? We shouldn't be doing that. What's wrong with that? Well, you know, it's probably not a good, what's wrong with that? And then they figure, well, wait a minute. Wait, wait. I was talking to so-and-so. This, he's got a word for, for that person. What is it? Well, oh, oh, yeah, it's the word legalist. That's what I'll start calling people who disagree with me. They're legalists. Friend, you don't even know what a legalist is. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me say today, maybe you're new, you've never heard this before, but I want you, I want to, the, the most important thing for you to understand today is this. Can you know for sure that you're going to heaven? Yes, you can know that. How can you know that? 
I touched on it early in this message, but let me emphasize it now. You can know for sure you're going to heaven if you will trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, let me explain what that all means, okay? If this hand represents you and me, and let my wallet represent our sin, here we are, we're all sinners. Now, listen carefully. God loves us, but he hates our sin. But to get into heaven, you have to be without sin, no sin. Heaven is a perfect place. You can't get to heaven with even one sin. So if you have sinned, you cannot go to heaven. As it is right now, you cannot go to heaven if you have sinned. You might say, well, I've, I've done good things. I, I've done this and I've done that. You have to be sinless. It isn't a matter of piling good works on your sin. God says you cannot go to heaven with your sin. You have to be sinless. None of us are. Therefore, we're all disqualified. God says not only have we sinned, but sin has to be paid for. And if we pay for our own sin, it would be by dying physically and then spending forever separated from God. God doesn't want us to spend forever separated from him. He loves us. He hates our sin, but he loves us. Something's got to be done about the sin before you die if you're going to go to heaven. Good works will not take it away. So then what are we going to do? Well, there's nothing we can do because we're already disqualified. It's like a cup. You drop a cup and it cracks. It's in pieces. Yeah, you can glue it back together, but it's never the same. It's already cracked. It's already ruined. When we sin, we're ruined. Matter of fact, we're born ruined. That's why Jesus came. But look up here. Because there's nothing to do, we can do to save ourselves. God himself took on flesh. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sinless. And when Jesus died on the cross, all the sin we've done up to this point and all the sin we'll do till the day we die, Jesus came, he took it all upon himself, and he said, I'm going to pay for it for you because I love you so much. I'm going to do it for you. And he died as our substitute, took all of our sin, leaving us none to pay for, came back from the dead to prove it, And he says, if you'll put your faith in him, your trust in him, he will save you. He'll give you everlasting life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, for he, God, hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, he was made sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If you are as righteous as God, could you get to heaven? Yes. How do you get that? Simply by faith putting your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. He will save you who give you eternal life. So you have to be saved not by your works. You have to be saved by something called grace, God's unmerited favor. And he wants to save you. But the only way you can is by putting your trust in Jesus Christ to get you to heaven. Look at it with me, these closing verses, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, not of works, lest any man should boast. Let me say today in closing, if you are trying to get to heaven by your own ideas, your own good works, your own merit, your own faithfulness, your good deeds, you're not going there. You need to have your sins taken away. The only way you can get rid of them is by putting your faith in Christ. And when you do, your sins are taken away. He forgives you and he gives you his righteousness. If you've never trusted Christ, please do it today. 
Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.